Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's show, I play an episode I recorded on live radio at WBI's Brooklyn studio. It's a jam-packed show and it features an interview I did with Lauren Ashcraft, who is a DA member running for Congress in New York's 12th district. Also features an interview I did with journalist and writer Yasha Levine about the weaponization of immigrants. Then we talked to journalist Aaron Mate about Ukraine Gate. And then I talked to Ron Davis and Cephas Uncle Bobby Johnson. They are respectively the father of Jordan Davis and Oscar Grant. They were both murdered, one by a policeman in the case of Oscar Grant and one by just an average civilian. They are in town, both of these men, to present a very important performance and it's called I Am Troy Davis. And you'll hear more about it uh, towards the end of the episode, but make sure that you check out I Am Troy Davis, which is going to be a performance in Brooklyn Sunday at 3 p.m. And it's basically sold out or almost sold out. So you can also watch the live stream. And to do that, go to donkeysaddle.org. Again, that's donkeysaddle.org. Now, I'm in the studio now with Lauren Ashcroft. Thank you so much for coming, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, tell us who you are. Who is Lauren Ashcroft? (laughs) So I am also a stand-up comedian. Yes. Um, Right now, I'm doing some temporary work with my very activist church, Middle Collegiate, to help them fundraise. And I am uh, an activist in the community. I've helped to organize the Women's March and also through my stand-up comedy have help to connect nonprofits with resources and funds that they need uh, through a series called Collection Box Comedy. And I am running for Congress because I so have... So wait, let's just not bury oh, the lead here. Sorry about You're that. You're very <laughs> humble. Lauren Ashcroft is running for Congress, okay? Big deal. Historic moment. Is this your first appearance on WBAI? Um, I actually was on Arthur Schwartz's show once. Okay, let me scratch that. Is this your first appearance on the Katie Halper Show? Yes. Historic moment. Stand some stand up on stand up, some female stand up on female stand up action. Um, very exciting stuff. So yeah, so you are running for Congress, and tell us why you are running for Congress, who you are running against. Yeah, so I'm running in New York's 12th congressional district, and I am running because I live there, and I have a vision for my district that includes everyone having a voice and everyone being fully represented. And right now, we're seeing the representation go to the rich and powerful and the corporations. And there are people that are sleeping on the streets and dying in this cold weather right now and people who are rationing their insulin in New York's 12th congressional district. So I am running against Carolyn Maloney, who has been in office for over a quarter of a century. And she takes mountains of corporate PAC money, which has influenced a lot of her decision-making. And she has ignored a lot of the people that need representation and need advocacy. So I am running to give every single person a voice in the district and to make sure that we get big money out of politics so that people are finally the priority and not profit. Great. And um, I wanted to know also about your background, um, because your background isn't typical for someone who's, well, first of all, I got the stand-up thing, <laughs> but also... Um, where you worked before. Tell us how you evolved um, to be the person you are standing, sitting in front of us. And by the way, I forgot to say this, no cursing. I know as a congresswoman, I mean, I know as a a woman running for Congress, you were, you came in 
curse guns ablaze and now you don't know what to say because you can't <laughs> curse on radio. But yeah, I want to tell you. No worries. Totally understood. Um, yeah, so my background, I studied international relations and then did a Master of Public Administration. And thereafter, I had some temporary roles in nonprofits, such as helping to build affordable housing, where I used to live in Pennsylvania. And then I came to New York and accepted jobs in the financial industry. It's okay. This is a safe space. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked in the financial industry in New York, and that is where I became extremely radicalized, if I'm being yeah. completely honest. And I am a democratic socialist. And whenever I see the representation and bailouts and handouts going to these huge corporations that keep those handouts in the top in the top 1% of the company. Right. And we keep pretending that that money is going to trickle down to average people in the industry. But whenever we're looking at the fact that um, banks were able to boast billions of dollars in extra profits because of the Trump tax cuts, that money didn't end up in the people, uh, you know, secretaries and IT people and project managers like myself. That didn't end up trickling down to them. Right. And so uh, whenever I worked at J.P. Morgan, I was uh, working in the legal department where we monitored that banking regulations were being followed. But I, I have become extremely radicalized by working in banks and seeing the huge amounts of money that stays at the top of them. Right. And that's very symbolic of what's happening throughout our entire country, not just in the banking industry, but all this money is just staying at the top of our society and working class people are paying into systems that they don't reap the benefits from. Right. So do you come from a progressive family? Did you become radicalized um, through working at J.P. Morgan in a way that made you, you know, go from Dem to Democratic Socialist or Republican to Democratic Socialist or apolitical or? Yeah. So I grew up in a very conservative household in stealing coal country. So my grandfather was a coal miner in West Virginia, and I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, where my family was and is still Republican. Wow. So my my journey has been sort of an awakening. I studied abroad in Germany and Sweden. Oh, wow. And cool. that really helped move me along in the direction that I'm in. And then coming back and getting the jobs in the financial sector and really just seeing every single day how our society works, that our system isn't broken. It's working exactly as it was planned to do. Um, just seeing that with my own eyes every day is exactly why I've become so passionate about helping regular working class people. And have you been able to convert your family members? Actually, <laughs> they told me that they're going to vote for Bernie Sanders. Oh, my God. <laughs> if I were not an objective WBI person, I would say hallelujah. But I'm not saying that because I'm an objective WAI reporter, <laughs> anchor, but um, I'm saying hallelujah just because I'm so impressed that you were able to do that as an individual. Of course, <laughs> you don't know. I could like Carolyn Maloney also. No, not taking any sides here. And 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 Congresswoman Maloney, um, you're welcome to come on the show. Um, we could all have a chat maybe. Um, but that's amazing. And that actually speaks to something that I talk about all the time and I think is so important, which is that a lot of people don't get that. People will think, oh, wait, how are you going to – you can't – possibly have a socialist or a DSA person, um, especially, you know, in a in a conservative country or how, the last people who are going to vote for Bernie Sanders are people who voted for Trump. And they don't get that. That's not true. 
they're more likely to go. You can convert a Trump voter to be a Bernie voter much more easily than you can to be a middle of the road voter, a moderate voter. We saw that in 2016. Like we knew people, I knew people who were Bernie or Trump, not Hillary. And like, look, was there misogyny involved in that? Oftentimes, yes. That doesn't change it, though. That's that's reality. And it wasn't just misogyny, because if if Clinton had run with a more robustly, um, a less moderate message, she would have, like, we saw this with Obama, too. You know, there's racism, there's sexism, and then there, you, there's a combo of things. So you had people who are racist who would, you know, this apocryphal, maybe it's not true, but it, it resonates a story of people basically saying, I'm going to vote for the insert expletive mm-hmm. um, slur because they were just fed up with the status quo. And, you know, anyway, uh, that's a whole other discussion we could get into. But, yeah, that's very inspiring and that's great. And are they going to support you? Yes. Your family? Yes. It's great. been it's been a long journey, um, but they're totally on board. They're some of my donors, my small dollar donors, which I'm really excited about. And one of the things that I like to keep in mind when I'm running for Congress and also as a human. Like jogging? Yeah, exactly. Is that um, where I come from, which is Johnson, Pennsylvania, that whole area feels completely ignored by representation because it was a steel town and that got wiped out three times by floods. And Nobody came and helped them afterwards. So whenever we're looking at, for example, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, these are people that go to places and connect with people, regardless of if you agree or disagree with either of them. Right. Or if you think they're genuine or not. Right. Like one may be connecting. Obviously, you know where we fall. One is connecting in a way that's genuine and he really wants to help them. One is pandering and selling them out. But yes, they both come to the place, go there and they are seen as as getting the pain. Yes. Whether or not one of them is a con artist. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So with with me and my family, my family has lost their health insurance. They've lost their jobs. They've lost a lot. And whenever we set, you know, Republican versus Democrat aside and talk about the fact that, you know, they're paying for marketplace insurance, which is thousands of dollars for my family, Right now, every single month, whenever we're looking at the fact that they're just draining through whatever retirement they thought they had right now because they don't qualify for Medicare yet, that's not political. That's the fact that we have allowed people to die because they're not rich. Right. That's because we've allowed our healthcare industry to be run by profit. So that's, that shouldn't be political. It should be. We should be focused on lives and focused on people not having to worry about going to the emergency room and then going into a lifetime of debt. Right. You're listening to The Katie Halper Show, and I'm speaking to um, Lauren Ashcroft, who is running for uh, as a DSA con- uh, member, DSA yeah. member, not mm-hmm. yet candidate, but that could change very shortly. But <laughs> I, either way, you're a DSA member. You're running for Congress. Mm-hmm. Um but I also want to ask you, Lauren, about your biography. You come from an interesting background, um, even just like ethnically, if you could talk about that and the lessons that you learned from your grandfather, for instance, where he's from um, uh, and your grandmother, what happened to your grandfather? He had an accident, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandparents are 
my heroes and who have inspired me to run. So on one side of my family, my grandmother was an immigrant from Japan. And she met my grandfather when he was serving in the Air Force in Japan. Uh, they fell in love. They had my dad in Japan. And then that family of three immigrated to the United States after my grandfather was finished serving in the Air Force. And when he moved the family back to West Virginia, where he was originally from, he fed the family by becoming a coal miner. And unfortunately, not that long after they settled in West Virginia, he was a victim of the 1968 Farmington Mine disaster, which left my grandmother, a newly immigrated single mother, widow, Japanese woman in the middle of West Virginia. And she was left to feed her family off of small social security checks. And that accident that killed so many people that day was really the first time that people were like, oh, maybe we should think about the safety of people we're sending underground to power our houses and our industry. So unfortunately, my grandfather had to die that day. And I keep that in mind every single day. November 20th was actually the anniversary of that accident. So it's a very um, strong, sad time for my family. But when I was in 1968, yes, 1968. So whenever I'm talking about corporate greed, I carry with me the fact that my family wasn't even called by the coal mine or the company that day. They found out by watching the news. Wow. So that's That's how they found out that their relative died, been killed. Yes. So that's that is corporate greed. It literally kills people. And um, we I grew up just very anti fossil fuels, if I'm being completely honest. And there there are greener ways to power our entire country. And there are safer ways and healthier ways as well. And that's the exact kind of thing we have to talk about whenever we're visiting places like West Virginia, and especially with the presidential campaign going on right now, is what are the ideas and industries and jobs and education that you can bring to these areas because they have been forgotten about and lied to and told that coal mining is the only way that they can feed their family. Right. Yeah. It's really great also to hear you talk about this because a lot of people have the idea that Oh, like these, you know, Northeasterners, these environmentalists, they don't know what it's like. It's easy for them. You know, we have to put food on our, our on the table, feed our families. But you're someone who literally comes from that and you like your grandfather was killed there. Mm-hmm. Like you're not you're not um, unaware of what the realities um, live realities of people who are in um, coal mining areas is totally. So, yeah, that's really important. Um, has Bernie Sanders met you yet? Um, no, but I was at his rally and I would love to, but I would also possibly freak out. Yeah, I know. I, I did that. <laughs> and bro- I met him in Brooklyn. We'll talk about that another time. But yeah, I mean, I feel like you, both of you have a very similar, you both get for different reasons. I mean, he grew up in in Brooklyn, but you get that there's like, you don't turn your back on disaffected, potentially conservative, potential Trump voters. You reach out to them, you understand why they're doing that. Mm-hmm. And then you convert them and bring them to the struggle so they don't vote for someone like Trump. Yeah, exactly. It's so simple, and yet it's so... I don't know why it's hard for people to grasp, but... And that's one side of your family. Can you talk about the other side of uh, your family? Yes, and uh, just sure, just yeah. to finish up that side, um, the my grandmother survived off of really small Social Security checks. So whenever I'm 
looking at programs that keep people alive and how they're funded. Social Security is a program that has an income contribution cap of around $133,000 per year. So if you're Jeff Bezos, you're dropping a penny in a bucket that we're all funding. Right. Working right. class people are, are paying a percentage of their entire income while Jeff Bezos pays a percentage of a percentage of a penny. Right. So that's the kind of income contribution cap that I just want to get rid of. Yeah. So that we can all contribute what we should to keep people alive. So that's one side of my family. And on the other side, my grandfather was a hardworking mechanic and had a trailer repair shop in his yard. And he was working um, and fell one day and unfortunately broke his neck and he was paralyzed from the neck down. And so my family uh, essentially became his caretakers. My mom and grandma and aunts all really pitched in and did shift work because it's too expensive to hire somebody, especially if you're from a working class family. Right. So I saw things like my grandmother and aunts and mom working for a negative amount of money because they cared because they love my grandfather. And that's where something like a federal jobs guarantee would come in and you would get paid to be a caretaker for people that you love that need care. Right. And um, also, whenever I think about my grandfather, I think about the fact that whenever I'm talking about the vision I have for the district and that I want everyone to be advocated for and have a voice and be represented, I'm talking about the almost 50,000 people that are registered as having a disability. But whenever you look at our public transit system, for example, uh, 75% of subway stops are not accessible right. to people that have physical disabilities. Yeah. How? Yeah, it's true. And we never, I mean, I have to admit, I never, it's one of those things that's kind of invisible until you know someone who, who needs that access. Yes. And then you realize, you know, you go around your whole life not even considering how these things are literally impossible to navigate. Yes. And we're just, we're forcing people that have disabilities to be homebound. Yeah. To have to pay a whole lot of money to get around, to get to their jobs to get to the doctor. And whenever I look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is 29 years old, it's the baseline. It does not go far enough because if you are somebody that uses a wheelchair or a walker and you can't get into a place because it's not accessible, you have to find an attorney and sue. Oh, right. That's easy. Yeah. And and show up in court. Yeah. Right. How are you going to get there? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, you're already living off of pennies because we haven't had representation that point out that disability is not livable right. especially if you have dependents and have your renting in New York City for example it's not affordable it's not livable and so i want something like the americans with disabilities act to be expanded and enforced by the federal government so that it's not the burden of people with wheelchairs and with crutches and with walkers to have to sue Right. And I also want to make sure that disability is livable and that people that have constraints that keep them from being able to work are able to live with dignity. Great. Yeah. Um, And I hope everyone's I mean, listening, I just want everyone to know that they can find out more about Lauren at Vote Ashcroft. I'm speaking to Lauren Ashcroft, who is a Democratic Socialist comedian running for Congress in New York's 12th district, zero corporate or super PAC money. And um, are you, you're a brand new 
yes. Congress candidate. Yes. So can you tell people what that means? Yeah. So it's it's this amazing slate. And definitely uh, check out Brand New Congress and everybody that is on the slate with me. Because I just got back from the Brand New Congress Summit where I got to meet everybody. Great. That's running across Congrats. the country. Thank you. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, and we are all running and rejecting that corporate PAC influence and dirty money. And we are running to represent the people and are totally people-powered and grassroots. So it's a group of us that are representing the same ideals. And, oh gosh, if if some of us get into Congress, I would be so happy <laughs> because these are the exact people that I want to represent the United States. And who are some, can you name some of those people uh, now and also maybe any of the elected people? Yeah, so Michaela Wilkes, I love her so much. Uh, Corey Bush. Love her. Paula Jean Swearingen. Great. Betsy also coal miner. Yes. We, I feel like we go back <laughs> a long way and, uh, I'm really excited to connect with her. We just co-endorsed each other. Great. She's well. been on the show too, by the way. Uh, She's running against, she ran against Joe. I'll vote for Trump over Sanders Mansion. Yep. Joe, I'll vote to, um, confirm Kavanaugh Mansion. Awful. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. West Virginia deserves way better, and I'm really, really proud to know her. Um, yeah, AOC. Anthony Clark, AOC. Was one of that, right? <laughs> oh, how did I forget? Her? Yeah, no, it's, it's good. You got <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. Anthony Clark. It's just a bunch of really amazing. Anthony people. Clark is great. Chicago. Yes. That, yeah, gotta have him on. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. If you hang out for a little bit, we can see if anyone uh, has phone has questions for you. And again, if you want to do that, the number for that is two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, that's 212-209-2877. Then we're also going to be talking to Yasha Levine and Aaron Mate, these amazing journalists. And um, we have a phone call right now. Lo and behold. Hello. Welcome to the KD Helper Show. Please name, please give your name and where you're calling from. I'm Zabby and I'm calling from Suffolk County. And I'm so pleased to hear about the brand Hello? new, uh, brand new conference. Oh, oh, sorry. I can't. One second. Let me just raise the volume because I can't. Yes, the volume has been very low for callers. Okay, the volume low. has been very low for callers. Okay, thank you. Yes. So, all right. I, I, I'm so excited to hear about um, uh, Lauren Ashcroft here running for Congress and also uh, the brand-new Congress she just told us about. This is so wonderful. And I don't know if you – and you mentioned Bernie Sanders, that she should meet Bernie Sanders. I just uh, myself have in my card just a – a regular um, a card that's like a business card uh, size. It says, uh, it with Bernie Sanders' picture on it, and it's uh, from berniesanders.com. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it says on one side with his uh, hands raised up. You remember that? Yeah. And, yes, that wonderful photo. It says, I want free stuff. The best things in life are free. It says, <laughs> a government free of corruption. Nice. Elections free of corporate uh, money. A legal system free of racism, a health care free of profits of greed, a country free of war for profit, an educational system free, uh, free poverty ceilings. And then it says on the other side, with him pointing his finger up in this other cute picture, I've never seen anything so cute. Yeah, he's adorable. Quote, <laughs> you think that I'm giving away free stuff? Wrong. I am just suggesting your tax dollars get used for valuable public services instead of wasting billions on Wall Street bailouts, bailouts, oil wars, and corporate subsidies. Because it, it's the billionaires who are getting the free stuff, Bernie. 
Great. Bernie. And he should be on public access TV, just like Democracy Now! was on uh, throughout the nation on public access TV. We, if he has a video, he can, we can, he uh, volunteers um, throughout the nation can uh, get him uh, with people like uh, Lauren Ashcroft on public access TV in a half hour little thing. They can send these, uh, get people who will go to the cable companies and ask for an application to be on public access television and get a show called Elect Bernie Sanders. Okay, yeah. yeah. Bernie and maybe Sanders. Lauren can be a co a co host of that show. Heck yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well and and you could do it he could do one one for the for one to put right across the nation. It can keep playing, then he can do a sequel and and uh, it can be changed. It's uh it's a uh, it, we can yes. do this. We uh, have yes, to we... get Bernie Sanders elected in this primary. Yeah, not me. Up. Not me, us. And Kent Sanders, say your name and where you're calling from? This is Zabby. I do a public access. I, I do a public access television, and I do a radio show on Stony Brook Radio. A woman's perspective on politics every Great. Monday from one thirty to three. Great. Well, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you. You're listening to the Katie Halper Show on WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, talking to Lauren Ashcraft. It's Ash. I mean, I know it's spelled Ashcraft, but it's Ashcraft pronounced, right? Yes. Okay, sorry, I've been saying Ashcroft, no, no. Ashcraft. Um, and we also have, uh, coming up in studio, we have Yasha Levine. So if you have any questions for him, an amazing uh, uh, journalist, um, you can call that number. Just smash that number. And uh, we have another uh, question for Lauren, and then we're going to be talking to Yasha. So uh, please tell us your name and where you're calling from. Hi, this is Matt, and I work at WDAI. I'm one of the volunteers, and I believe I remember you, Lauren. We met briefly some time ago in the new studio where you are while it was under construction. Yeah. And I was very impressed. Thank and you. I just wanted to say uh, I really wish you well and success. It's just very refreshing because you seem like a very sincere person, yeah, very honest person, and it would be very refreshing to have sincerity in government. Thank you. That I'm, I'm really moved. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lauren, um, and uh, again, make sure that you go to laurenashcraft.com that's L-A-U-R-E-N-A-C sorry, A-S-H-C-R-A-F-T dot com, that's Lauren A. S-H-C-R-A-F-T dot com. Um, also, you can follow her on Twitter at Vote Ashcraft. Yeah. And um, we are going to be talking now to Yasha Levine. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Make sure you check out Vote Ashcraft on Twitter and uh, go to laurenashcraft.com on the Internet. One of the best stand-up comedians running for Congress from Coal Mining County, country uh top five i would say that uh that i've met so far if you like hearing those interviews if you like hearing interviews with um the very i would say courageous and sharp uh, journalist yasha levine who's here with us now if you like hearing people like you know yasha um ben jealous nina turner um uh erica the late erica garner gwen carr eric garner's mother who's still with us, um, then please show your support and and help 
you know, WBAI bring you shows like the Katie Helper Show. Yeah, you should definitely do that. Yes. See, that's why I have this guest on, because he is so astute, and he has such great <laughs> takes, like, to listen to the Katie Helper Show and support WBAI. But, Yasha Levine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm just here to, to say yes. You're my yes man. Yes, yes. Yeah, you're my y- yes. yes, my yes man, my yes man. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Yasha is a journalist. Um, he is the author of a well. You're the author of how many books now? So, a couple. A couple. So yeah. Surveillance Valley is the last one and the big one. Yeah. Surveillance Valley. Um, also, you run a. Um, well, the reason I was fun, like, is this your substacker? Is that the right way? Yeah, to I don't say know what it? you call us. I guess yeah, we're the it's the it's the new generation. So the the uh, the Patreon people are kind of the um, passe. It's passe. It's it's Substack now. Substack now, yeah. Who, for people who don't know, and that's a place where you publish um, like serially. It's essentially a, a newsletter. So it's a, newsletter, a it's yeah. a paid newsletter. I mean, it's, some of the stuff is paid. Uh, you some subscribe. of it's free. Some of it's free. Yeah. A lot of it is free actually. Yeah. Um, some of uh, some of it is paid. Um, and uh, it's just a way of uh, I have this project called Immigrants as a Weapon. So good. Yeah, that that looks at how um, the history of how America has weaponized um, immigrant communities um, uh, in all sorts of different ways. One of the main ways, of course, is, is a kind of as a, as a tool of empire so yeah. to turn immigrants that live in America sort of as tools of American empire. Um, and weapons against other countries. Yeah. And so, uh, but that's just kind of a subset of it. Yeah. But- Which is so interesting. We're going to get into that. But I, I, I didn't do my due diligence. Let me give a more complete yes, bio of, of uh, Yasha because I realize not everyone is as obsessed with him as I am, so they may not know um, how extensive his uh, career is. So, um, Yasha Levine has written um, several books, including A Journey Through California's Oligarch Valley, The Koch Brothers, A Short History, and The Corruption of Malcolm Gladwell. And again, his latest, biggest one is the, is Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. He's also written for places like Pando Daily, uh, Wire, The Nation, Slate, Time, The New York Observer, and is the co-founder of The Shame Project, which yeah. uh, well, we can get into later. But you're also... Um, Someone who you were born yourself in Leningrad or St. Petersburg, right? Yep. Um, and I wanted to talk specifically about your your focus on the weaponization of immigrants, which is so important because, uh, and, and the way you write also a lot about and talk a lot, a lot about. And you're an artist. I forgot about that. You're a really good visual artist. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself an artist. You I, are. Just, I doodle. I do. You're a very good artist. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yes. And um, you talk about Russophobia. Um, and what I find so interesting about you is that, you know, there's a real weaponization. We talk about this a lot of identity politics with with people who are, you know, supposed to speak for, for various oppressed groups. And like any other group of people, you know, people of color, LGBTQ people are not a monolith. Right. So no one gets to speak for a community. But what you often have is you have people doing that and then they represent positions that are not necessarily good for said community. Um, in my opinion, of course, obviously p- people can debate it, but um, it, it, then you have you know a lot of focus on representation and the um, demographics, and of course that is important. No one's saying representation isn't important, but the policy is important too, right? Mm-hmm. So having a you know I, I always use this example with Sanders, like what, Hillary Clinton. Would I have loved to have had a woman president? Yes, but do I prefer someone whose policies ranging from like overt abortion ones to uh, reproductive ones to stuff like economics and war mm-hmm. or more feminist. Yeah, I'd rather that. So, yeah. And we have this with with immigrants also. And 
And what you have is a very scary phenomenon where you have people who um, are from a certain country, right? Like we see this with Venezuela or Bolivia. People in the United States who obviously there's some self-selection here, right? They're here, they're living here, and they're saying, no, I'm a Venezuelan. I know that Maduro is a brutal dictator. No, I'm Bolivian. I know that Evo Morales is a corrupt um, bad guy. And then people are like, oh, oh, it's not just, you know, conservatives or it's not just rich people. It's actually people from these countries. As listen if, to the immigrant. Yeah, listen, listen to, to the immigrant. Exactly. Listen, listen to the immigrant. To Look X, at their perspective. The right. They know they're from there. They right. have credibility. And no one remembers yes. that. I mean, class exists there too, right? You're not a mon. It's not like there's one Bolivian voice. So yeah. um, can you talk about your experience as someone who's actually, you, you say you were kind of a weaponized immigrant. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, so I was born in the Soviet Union in Leningrad and we, um, so my family, we, uh, you know, we're Jewish. And so um, we, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, we came, uh, we left in 1989. We, we, we left as part of this big wave of um, Soviet Jews who um, had this kind of opportunity. Uh, the doors opened for Soviet Jews uh, uh, because of various factors that I'll get into. That's actually part of the, wep- the weaponization of, of my community um, in Cold War politics. Um, and we left as part of this wave. Uh, we in 1989, and we lived in refugee camps um, as political refugees in in Austria and Italy, and we ultimately ended up in um, in America. First in New York, here in Brooklyn, actually not that far away from here, and then we moved to San Francisco, where my dad got a job. And so I grew up. I was nine, and so I grew up from then on in in, San, in California, in San Francisco, and you know went to school there, went to college there, uh, and th- you know uh, and being an immigrant, you know, you have a pretty slow learning curve about, about things cause, because first you have to learn about the culture that you're in and then you have to then figure out where you stand in that culture as an immigrant. And you don't really have a, a, a family history that's attached to this new place. It's, right. you, know, you, you start from a blank slate. Essentially, America to, to, to me and my family, you know, started with the, you know, the end of the Bush presidency, the first Bush, the elder Bush, and essentially the kind of the Clinton presidency. So that was like the default baseline of, right. of, that, that, of, of, the America that we knew. So there was no, no history beyond that. And so you kind of have to learn things for yourself. And it's a, it's a longer process. I mean, I don't know. Some people never learn it, even right. if they're born here. Uh, but, uh, and so uh, one thing that really st- I started trying to figure out when I got older um, is trying to wrestle with this. Um, there's like a duality to the immigration process. Uh, on the one hand, you know, we were, we were kind of, um, the, the Soviet Union opened up its borders um, and let uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet Jews immigrate uh, to Israel and to America in large part because of uh, political pressure from, from America uh, and in, in the form of sanctions and, and uh, other kinds of political pressure. And so um, – and that pressure was in part driven by the Jewish community here in America who saw the kind of the, the – um, it was part of their – Jewish, Jewish identity, uh, the need to protect other Jews all around the world, and of course in the Soviet Union, and, and it was tied to there was a belief here in America that the Soviet Soviet Jews were essentially under threat, like mm-hmm. they were in Germany before the war, you know, which was a ridiculous um, idea. But if you actually go back and look at some of these uh, rallies to, um, to to free you know Soviet Jews in D.C. And, and actually in cities across America, you see people standing with. You know, giant posters where they have the uh, the hammer and sickle and the swastika, right, right. Uh, 
you know, like essentially an equation, right? And the, saying the that brown, what do they call it? The, br- the red, the, brown, yeah, the, uh, the the red brown alliance. But they didn't even yeah. talk about right, it that right, way. They yeah. just said that they, because there was this, you know, there was this generally, uh, as you probably very well know, because you're from New York with a very strong left wing tradition, um, Jewish tradition, and in the '60s and '70s, it really started to go right. Uh, the, uh, right. the Jewish the Jewish identity politics essentially. Yeah. So it went away from the class politics. Um, and left-wing politics and egalitarian po- politics to a kind of, yeah, more of a professionalized politics, managerial politics. And so Jewish identity became strong, or, divorced from, you know, the economic sides of it. Right. And Israel became the main political plank of, of, Jewish, of right. Jewish communities. It didn't matter if you were progressive or liberal or conservative. You know, Israel was the main thing. That's how you voted. Right. Uh, and also then at that same moment, uh, the, the liberation of Soviet Jews – Became this really big, huge movement, and it sucked in just about every you know Jewish community in America. And you know, and when I got older and started learning about this history, I realized that on the one hand, you know, we were the, the narrative that I grew up uh, grew up with as as uh, as a kid, and what I understood about the immigration was that you know the American people were really worried about us. You know, they were really worried about the Jews and our fate, and so because they're so great and egalitarian and just want to help people. They pressured the Soviet Union to let us go, and you know this happened right at the time when things were really bad in the Soviet Union. I mean, it was it's kind of the darkest moment before everything collapsed and got even darker. I mean, my whole childhood, I just remember, I, I don't have a single memory of a of a of a store with any pro- mm. products on it. I mean, just what I, I think of stores from that time is just they're all empty, right? Um, and you kind of had to do back black market stuff to get food essentially, and and um, and so it was a dark time, and so we were kind of rescued from this dark time. Uh, and we're very grateful for it. Uh, but then I understood that there was a second layer to that whole thing, which was uh, how our mm, liberation fit into the larger Cold War politics. And how, in fact, uh, if you look at it, uh, this emerging new conservative movement in America uh, saw the liberation of Jewish people as a way of, um, as a way of actually kind of, um, you, know, you know, putting a stake into the heart of the Soviet Union, mm. basically forcing it to open up. And, 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 and saw this as, as, as a way of not just liberating Jews, but actually destroying the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and, and kind of bringing that, the, the war between these two empires to an end. Uh, and so I, I understood that there was these du- dueling elements of the you know, activists in the, in the Jewish communities who were very involved in liberating um, you know, and trying to liberate Soviet Jews and trying to get them, uh, um, uh, you know, get the borders open for them, d- d- not didn't necessarily understand the larger sort of political and geopolitical narrative. They just focused on their Jewish identity and the need to fo- help other Jews. But there was another layer to it, which was very much geopolitical, which was very much about weaponizing this movement, weaponizing this humanitarian movement, uh, w- which is what it essentially was, right? right. It, was a, it was a humanitarian movement about, you know, a, a sort of a re- movement for religious freedom, um, right? But weaponizing it in a very, very clear polit- geopolitical goal to to destroy the Soviet Union. Uh, and so you know, that's an, that's an inspiration to me, and it's something that I've only really st- recently started to, to to really understand, just because it's taken me a while to wrap my head around all the different. I don't know. Just it's 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 multi layered. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and so, but I but thinking about that, I realized that you know, obviously, Soviet Jews were just one group. Um, you know, it happens all the time. I mean, it doesn't. It's, it's 
as you even, as you know very well, even on this this backlash that you've been getting uh, after doing an interview with uh, Max Blumenthal, you know there's these wep- the weapon immigrant identity and immigrant communities, whether these immigrants are in America or whether these immigrants are in you know in or not in America, but there are you know people in other countries and weaponizing the, the, their identity in the service of very very cynical American geopolitical interests. Uh, and it happens all the time. I mean, not a day goes by, I think, in Washington, D.C., that it, some, some immigrant group is, isn't being weaponized in order to bolster American interests abroad in some way, right? Right. Or to, you know, as a way to beat down critics of those, of those policies here at home. And so um, I sort of, so I, I, I feel like that's a, a, a part of the immigrant, American immigrant experience that isn't at all given voice to. Right. It's, it's that, you know, immigrants, yes, they're victims. Uh, and they are exploited in America. Obviously, there's a cycle, but they're also exploited not just economically. Uh, they're also exploited politically and not just as uh, demonized, let's say, like someone like Donald Trump would demonize them, but actually held up and celebrated. And that is another right. way of actually ex- exploiting them and weaponizing them. Um, and so you, you see that you see that happen every, with just about every country that America has, has a conflict with. You have an immigrant community that is there. Uh, and is being utilized in some kind of fashion, whether whether it's held up as as representative of the of that whole country, right? The voice, the yeah. voice of that of that country and of the people of that country, or you know, in in other kinds of ways, where or or even suppressed, like you don't hear you know the interests of I don't know the Shia minority in Iran in Saudi Arabia, for instance, right? Uh, and the, how they're being repressed there brutally, uh, and yeah. so c- certain immigrant communities. Uh, or ethnic sort of uh, identities, right, are actually not given voice to voice to because giving them voice actually would go against American interests and right. the interests of American allies. So right. there's there's a there's a bolstering and a suppression, right? And, and so exploring Very that selective. is pretty interesting, you know. It, yeah. And it, it doesn't it doesn't it actually and it gives you an insight into into. Um, you know, it's it's a very American. The American is a nation of immigrants. You know, it really is. It, uh, being an Im- immigrant identity is, is very important uh, to the sort of American cultural s- sense of self. And uh, and there are a lot of immigrants here, uh, obviously. And so America, America is very well placed to utilize that um, as a way as a as a as a weapon. And you know, like. For instance, you know, you, you know, in Ukraine, which is now the subject of these impeachment hearings, yeah. Amer- weaponizing um, a very nationalistic strain of that country's uh, population, uh, a, a political strain, um, as a way of weaponizing against the Soviet Union, a sort of u- weaponizing nationalism against the kind of Soviet internationalism, uh, has been part of American foreign policy. You know, going back to the very end of, of World War II, I mean, to like 1948. Yeah, that's a, like a specific strategy to weaponize nationalism. Which meant really weaponizing um, groups that were fascist and uh, collaborators uh, collaborated with the Nazis, and using that to kind of split away, you know, Ukraine uh, from the Soviet Union by focusing on your unique national identity, right? Yeah. And using that with, so, so, and that, and that's you can draw a line from that to the policies that America is pursuing in Ukraine today, and sort of the the. The, the work with all these different fascist groups and very very far right groups. So there's a it's it's just such it's a, it's such a basic tool right. in the American geopolitical um, sort of uh, armory that no one even notices there because it's At so all. pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about this the 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 this fascist 
creeping fascism or sustained fascism that exists in areas of uh, the former Soviet Union, which are never discussed because as people like you and Aaron Mate and Matt Taibbi point out, the Russia gay narrative has become, um, and you don't have to be, although people like to say that if you are at all critical or skeptical of the Russiagate narrative, that you are a Trump supporter, which couldn't be further from the truth in the cases of you and Matt and Aaron. I'm just using you, like, you're, I, I think of you and, and Mark Ames, right? Some mm-hmm. of the, there's like a handful of people who really talk about this stuff. Um, none of this is discussed. Everything is seen through the prism of how we can get Trump, and people may get the sense correctly that I'm not a Trump fan, but I'm also not a fan of the way that the Russiagate narrative um, kind of frames uh, the entire American foreign policy discussion. Um, can you talk about, before we get into what actually is happening in Ukraine, talk about what you've observed about the Russiagate discussion um, and, and also about the way Russia is being presented as this monolith and, the uh, you know, yeah. Well, look, you know, like meddling happens, right? So states meddle in each other's affairs all the time. Uh, it's just, it's like a normal, it, it, it's, it's, it's such a weird thing that people are suddenly freaked out about right. and meddling, you know? Because the U.S., it's, that's our lane. Well, it's, but it's also the lane of every other government, right, you know, whether, course, you, right, right. whether they're American allies or, uh, or uh, Enemies, adversaries yeah, or whatever. Sure, yeah. It's just, you meddle in whatever way you can and you do it, you know, as, as long as you, you, you try to get away from with it, with it. And really there is no real recourse, you know, it just happens. You know, everyone has spies. Everyone engages in some kind of propaganda work. Everyone is, tries to secretly influence the the political process, especially if they're you – know, so it goes both ways. I mean, America does this obviously right. in a massive way, uh, just about everywhere on, on on the globe. And, of course, there's – you know, there's it goes flows back the other way. You know, Israel is very much involved in trying to influence the American process. I mean, Turkey is very much involved. Uh, you know, the United uh, Arab Emirates are very much involved. Saudi Arabia is very much involved. Of course, Russia is involved on some on some level too. You know, so meddling happens. So the but this what's going on with the Russia Gate? You know, it's it's a, I mean the way that I see it is that it, it's this attempt to displace domestic political problems, which are which led you know a, a very like really a degenerate political situation in in America that's really deep and that's not really easy to fix with even just an election. Right. And which directly led has led to Donald Trump. Right. Donald Trump is, is a sort of symptom of this total degradation of American politics. Um, you know, and to, so the Russia gate is this attempt to blame the a symptom of this degradation, not on actually what's going on in the country and on the political forces that are active in this country. Uh, the corporations, the political parties, uh, right. Uh, the think tanks, right. you know, all of this sort of establishment structures, turning the people turning backs on all these their backs on all these communities. Yeah, just complete a complete plundering, yeah. oligarchic plundering of, right. of the country on on every level, and a and a collapse of society on so many levels. It's it's actually kind of stunning to watch it, you know. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, I think listeners of the radio station don't need to be told about all these things, but but it's an attempt to blame this really complex and really messed up situation that's domestic in nature. I mean, purely domestic, right? on this inscrutable foreign enemy and to basically make Russia this kind of very scary, uh, very, uh, very um, like all-encompassing kind of threat that gets into our, into American society in all these different ways. It's almost impossible. You know, they could be coming in through your Facebook ad. They could be coming in through your, you know, ele- electrical grid. They could be coming in through, you know. Uh, right, your, freezing everyone. They could be, exactly. Yeah. They, 
They could be, yeah. Uh, they could be coming in all these different ways, but, but, and that ultimately they have this total control of American society. I mean, I've even had a friend who's actually a Russian immigrant like me. Um, it's, it's not really directed, directly related to, uh, Russiagate, but it kind of is. It's actually pretty funny. He thinks that, uh, you know, that all the school shootings that are happening are actually also the result of foreign meddling. Uh, like some maybe maybe I don't know he doesn't think it's necessarily Russia but it could be China and they're somehow targeting the kids you know that are most at risk for snapping and you know doing some kind of social engineering through Facebook and whatever so I mean these, this is the kind of the belief right so blaming this is encapsulates what Russia Gate is it's blaming right. a very domestic problem right finding an external enemy and finding right? external enemy and that's and that's a very American thing you know yeah. it's, it's 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 such an American thing it's it's just it, 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 so it's it's just a, that's my that's my larger problem with Russiagate, I'm not, I, I think that it's very, it would be weird to think that Russia didn't meddle in some kind of way. Um, I mean, very clearly there's some influence happening because Russia, for instance, has Russia Today, you know, or RT. And right. RT is a, you know, it's a, it's like Voice of America or sure. Radio Free uh, Europe or Radio Liberty or Radio Free Asia, like a, a, a kind of a information arm of, sure. of the Russian state government. Run, state run media, right? State run media and but it has an agenda of some kind. As opposed kind. to corporate run media, Right, yes. where they pretend that to me is what's so dangerous. Like, yes. if you watch RT, you know where they're coming from. Yes. You know their agenda. If you watch NBC, MSNBC, no, that's agenda free. Totally, no, no political I agree with objectives that. there, right? I agree and with I, that. I mean, it's just like corporations meddle. Corporations meddle, right? But they just pretend not to. They're yes. just what capitalism. Corporations are the biggest market. meddlers there are. I mean, they control American the American right. political process completely. Yeah, and uh-huh. what's so scary about the media bias is that when you watch RT, you know where it's coming from. You know that there's going to be certain agendas and objectives, right? When you watch MSNBC, apparently there aren't any. No, no one watch unless you're really into like unless media it's criticism. Fox News. Fox News meddles. Fox yeah. News. They're they're not bad, objective bad, yeah. because they're yeah. right wing. Yeah, of course. CNN, and, totally no, neutral. Yeah, right. And it's really <laughs> scary because people do, I mean, people who I like and respect and are smart in lots of ways, there's this like brain worms that you see happen. And um, and, and talk about the, the right, so so people have their guard up. Like if I watch RT, I'm going to say maybe their Crimea coverage isn't going to be the most, you know, yeah, exactly. like biting or critical of Russia. But you know what? Like if I watch... MSNBC, I can't trust them on almost anything. Yeah. And the danger is no one knows what to be looking for. They don't know the bias unless they're on the yeah. right and then they kind of do. But um, can you talk about the Russophobia that you've seen? And this is, a, of course, very interesting because you yourself are you are Ukrainian born. No, Russian. Well, I mean, it's, oh. it's an, it would be the Russian Socialist Republic. So, okay. so Russian Jewish, Russian, Russian Jew, Jewish. You identify Russian how? Soviet I mean, Jew. you're like a. You're I mean, that's an a weird thing. Anyway, so right? but, I mean, I'm born. I'm born in what is today Russia. Okay. So it was at the time it was the Russian Soviet Federation Republic. So the Russia, uh, of course, you know, being in the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviet Union and especially you know, the war and everything and and the revolution and up the upheaval uh, from that, like the country is completely mixed. You know, it's it's an extremely mixed up society where. You know, it's not like groups have been in one territory for generations, uh, and you can sort of trace it back. It's, it's it's very mixed up. So, you know, my family has its roots in Belarus and uh, Ukraine, um, and so so. But but you know, I was born in Russia. My mom in in, in the Soviet, Soviet Russia, right? And right. in, in my my mom was born there. Um, my dad was born and also there, like you know, basically in a gulag. Or, or just not on the outside of a gulag, you know, like by the border with Kazakhstan. So, 
I mean, it's, it, my identity is a, like as an, as an immigrant identity from immigrant from a, from a state that no longer exists. Yeah, it's weird to like what do you, what are you, you know? So right. ethnically, Why I'm Jewish. Yeah. Right. Thank God uh, for small favors. As a Jew, you're already kind of exactly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Jewish, I, and I consider myself to be a you know a, a Russian Jew, a, a Soviet, rootless cosmopolitan, basically a Soviet Jew because that's right. I, I don't even that's kind of where I was born and where I was you know I was nine when I left uh, and so. A Soviet Jew, a Russian Jew, a Ukrainian Jew. I mean, you can call me all sorts of different ways. It, things it, it would more or less fit. Um, um, and so, but of course, the Russophobia, it's a, it's a very, again, it's another one of these things, you know, because what is a Russian is not even clearly defined. Because, you know, in Russia, you have people from, you know, Ch who are half Chechen, who are half uh, Russian. You have people who are Ukrainian. You have people who are Belarusian. You have people who are um, from, from the, you know, from the Caucasus. You can be have Georgian and Russian. So when the, when, when you hear about the term Russian, uh, usually talked about, you know, in, in, in connection to Russiagate and sort of the impeachment hearings or, you know, the contacts with the Trump, uh, campaign with, you know, Trump's people, it, it's a totally flexible category. So if you are bad, you know, you're, are, you could, be, you might be like a Ukrainian Jew, but you'll be labeled there as a Russian. Right. If you are seen as someone who uh, is like pro-Trump and is somehow has ties to the Russian, it can be slaughtered into that territory. Now, if you are seen as like on the good side of you know, and you're anti-Trump or you know, you 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 will be sort of more correctly slaughtered into your identity. So you'll be like a, a Ukrainian Jew, right? Uh, and so or and so so this the, the term Russian has it's a it's a you know it's 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 such a flexible uh, ethnic category uh in 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 you know for the past four years it's been kind of funny to track that and so i i, I it's very i'll tell you what's really weird about um watching this sort of panic about the russians is is it it, it really showed me for the first time how you know there's this stereotype uh, i think that i mean i believed it you know, haven't not really thought about it he's like where does racism come from mm -hmm. where do racist panics come from like and the idea is, oh yeah, it comes from the bottom, from the from the sort of the working class, right, from yes. the uneducated, right. from those people totally. down there. Yeah. And there, you know, they have their stereotypes, they have their hatreds and stuff like that. And so it sort of bubbles rednecks to the top. And, yeah, 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 rednecks and hicks and yeah. and uh, you know, all these yeah, basically it's from down there. Sure. It's from like the deplorables, yeah, right? Exactly. Um and so uh and so, and so, of course, you need this kind of, you know, educated people, professional people who are, of course, not racist and would never talk that way to really tamp that down. Uh, and, 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 but watching, watching this develop in, during Russiagate, it's clear that, you know, racism is actually coming from the very top because I don't, I don't, I've never met really anyone on the street who's freaked out about Russians. Right. You're and talking you, about what, so we're, we're talking about more particularly like the Russia, the, the, Russophobic strain of racism, right? Yes, yeah, the Russophobic strain, the idea that there are these Russians and that uh, that any kind of Russian that is basically, if you're Russian, you're already kind of suspect because yeah. all Russians are clearly, you know, they have, you know, there's all all these levers that Putin can use to control you against right. your family, against you know your extended family. Yeah. you know, there's like there were these crazy articles written during the during the uh, election where. Russian, you know, Russians who live in America, or Russian immigrants, you know, who, they might even be American citizens, but they might be receiving pensions still from, from Russia. That they're actually the the Russian pension system, that's distributing money, uh, you know, to to Russian Americans, is actually being used to funnel money, corruption money, payoff money by Putin. Uh, okay, to right, Russian yeah. Americans. Yeah. 
this was in this was in Newsweek. Yeah, or what about like Carl um Rob uh Carl Reiner? Uh, uh, talking about like the Russian DNA or the Russian yes. Oh yeah, I mean the well virus. there's um uh, James Clapper uh was talking about how you know uh uh, multiple on multiple occasions, even on on, on Meet the Press, um, he was talking about how you know Russians are are genetically geared to cheat, to lie, to to uh, authoritarian. To yes, right? there's there's you have like uh, you know, opinion pieces in the New York Times talking about the authoritarian strains of you know that of, uh, if you look at you have uh, someone like you know in Talking Points Memo, what's the guy who Josh stung? Marshall? Yeah, he's like tweeting about how you know there's an authoritarian genetic strain to the Russians. I know. Because my family comes from Russia, you know, like oh. he's, he's Russian Jews. Yeah. So there you go. It's the weaponization of yeah, his immigrant exactly. identity. Russian Jew cred. Yeah. Yeah. So he knows. Right. Yeah. Because, and so, um, and so you have this in all sorts of examples. I mean, there's so many to to, to choose. It's kind of it's actually I every I I always want to keep track of it, but then I just it's lose like, the so, too. I know. It's yeah. like me trying to document Bernie bias. It's yes. like I would stand in my yeah. I would have to be taking. I want to throw up. It. You know, I, yeah. I actually it's too depressing. It's kind of right. like like a lot of the yeah. stuff with the Russia Gate and yeah. You have Keith Oberman, for instance, saying Russian scum. Yes, and then yeah. and it's complicated because it's like we're not pretending that like anti-black racism within the United States is comparable to Russophobia. But that no. doesn't mean there isn't Russophobia, and it doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. So people will often be like, oh, I, oh, you're saying that, like, you know, show me, like, the Russians killed by cops on the streets. Like, no, no one's saying that. Yeah. And that doesn't mean... You can't, you can't like, third world problems, the this stuff, right? You can't be well, like... Well, it's different. I mean, not everything... Of course, Russians are not a major... Don't have a... You know, Russians are... Don't have the same kind of history in, yeah. in, inside America right. that African Americans or black, blacks yeah. have in America. It's not systemic. Right. You know, racism against them is not a systemic. Yeah. Not walking down the street. But it is systemic now. in the sense of the Cold War has kind of right. made it systemic, not in the same kind of way, but but the um, the uh, exotic, exotic ex- making them exotic yeah. and making them this exotic enemy yeah. that is is a orientalizing is a total like, yeah. yeah like ha- poses an existential threat right to russia yeah. not just not just you know the country but but that russians in general are are, are part of this kind of barbaric yeah, kind of sneaky, asiatic corrupt, yes. like like asiatic and yeah, mobsterish it's yeah. a, it's a transference there's actually a, a really great um, book called the uh, uh, judeo bolshevism Hmm. That looks part of what it does is it actually it starts to go there. It doesn't really go there all the way, but it starts to go there. Looking at how the 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 the, the, the sort of the Nazi uh, and um, this kind of white Russian sort of right wing uh, idea of, of Judeo Bolshevism that you know communism is actually is actually a Jewish conspiracy, right? That to enslave the world, right? Yeah, and how that actually so that flattery will get you nowhere, guys. <laughs> exactly. That that um, that was actually transferred over to a to a, a de racified de anti-Semitized uh, kind of Cold War anti-communism. Right. So the anti-Semitism was taken out of that um, overt anti-Semitism, but mm-hmm. it, it transformed into this communist conspiracy, right? right? And this communist conspiracy by these kind of uh, savage, you know, Slavic savage right. Mongoloid type of people, right. you know, yeah. who are out there conspiring to take over the world and you can actually see that now transfer over to this fear of the russians uh in a big way uh and of course it's not you can be racism can be directed against a group that actually doesn't even live in you know in your society right so i and people who criticize me sometimes say well it's not real racism because you know russians are not a disadvantaged group in american society it's like well 
you can be racist against someone and they don't even you haven't you you might not even have met them or never even interact with them but you can be racist yeah you, you can, can have, have racist right, ideas. ideas yeah exactly yeah and then act on those ideas you know n- not maybe on a personal level but on a on, a, on an institutional level on a on a political level right and i know that you know the same thing is happening with i know against the chinese americans and actually yeah. that is having an effect because now there's a lot more scrutiny aimed at chinese americans because now every everyone who's Chinese is considered to be a potential Chinese spy, spy right. and people are being denied, um, um, you know, um, academic positions and are a lot being a lot more uh, scrutinized than they ever were, and it's creating this pretty to- a very toxic um, atmosphere at uh, at universities. And actually, you know, enrollment by Chinese and Chinese Americans uh, has kind of plummeted in some of these programs. So it does have a real effect. These things. Um, but yeah, the Russia again. This Russophobia is really a, about the creation of a this external enemy. Right. Well, let's um, take a quick musical, just a quick musical break. We're talking to Yasha Levine. Uh, you're listening to the Katie Helper Show on WBAI. That's ninety nine point five FM or WBAI.org. and you can support us at um, give to WBAI.org. Uh, and also make sure you check out Yasha's work. You can find him at yashalevine.org. Uh, I mean, you can yasha.substack.com. Yeah, and so we're just taking a, a very short musical break. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking more with Yasha. We're going to be talking with Aaron Mate over the phone. Cool. And we're going to be talking about the impeachment and what we're not talking about when we talk about the impeachment. How do you like that? How do you like that? Think <laughs> peaceification. Yeah. Um, we are here still with Yasha Levine. Very excited to be talking to him. Great journalist. Um, the author of many books, including... Excuse me. Surveillance Valley, also a great Substack um, where he writes about the weaponization of immigrants. Um, and uh, we are going to be talking. We're going to be joined also soon by Aaron Mate. We're going to be talking about the impeachment um, hearings. But what is it that uh, Yasha would you say? Um, what's not getting discussed with the impeachment hearings? Like, there's this whole Im- story about what is happening with Ukraine and arming Ukraine that's just being totally ignored because uh, it doesn't make Trump look bad, apparently. Well, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I think it does, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's, I don't know, uh, a lot of things aren't being talked about, like, uh, I don't know, the, Bi- the the corruption of not just Hunter, Hunter Biden and this um, and this position he got on the Ukrainian uh, energy company, basically as a way to... Um, get to his uh, father, who was the, who was the vice president of, of America, uh, and to and try to influence American f- policy. Some, uh, but like generally, the the corruption that exists with um, um, with the way that America treats Ukraine as this kind of as essentially as a, as a battering ram against Russia, as 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 a, as a as, as as cannon fodder, you know, in America's war against Russia, but also as as, as an enrichment scheme for. You know, American uh, establishment uh, types like Hunter Hunter Biden and 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 just about everybody goes in to consult and you know to 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 sit on boards in Ukrainian companies and just it's, it's the American elite enriches itself in Ukraine and uses it in its in its cynical war against Russia, and so none of that gets talked about. Um, of course, none of that. What isn't also being talked about is that you know Vice President Biden himself did what is essentially a pay-to-play. Right. Uh, uh, scheme, you know, uh, with Ukraine, where he said, "I'm going to withhold uh, aid unless you do this one thing and fire this one prosecutor." I mean, that's a very direct demand, and uh, and and a threat saying that if I, I will withhold it, and, and actually that quit for that that actually pay to play 
turned out that Ukraine did fire the, the prosecutor that Biden wanted uh, Ukraine to fire. And so it's there's a lot of things that aren't being talked about. But, you know, of course, everything's being very restricted to just this one little narrow thing that Trump did, uh, which, you know, you could see that being you could see Trump and his, and his people working up to that from a mile away. I mean, they've been talking about the Ukraine's role in trying to uh, basically sink his, his candidacy right. uh, in uh, during the election campaign and. 2016, they've been they've been talking about that. They've been complaining about that for years. And so naturally, when you know, as the election season approached, they started really trying to realize that in some kind of way uh, to try to use the fact that uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, with Ukrainian uh, political operatives and, and government officials, and uh, actually officials from the DNC in America, worked together to produce uh, dirt on Paul Manafort, uh, who then who. Who uh, you know was accused of essentially being a pro- like a Russian plant, uh, and and uh, you know Paul Manafort was was the beginning of this of these accusations against the Trump campaign that you know Trump was in the pocket of, of Vladimir Putin and was essentially a Russian a Russian um, a Russian you know asset. Right. Uh, and so Ukraine Ukrainian Ukrainian government officials and uh, DNC officials actually had a hand in uh, procuring that information and spreading it. Uh, you know, a, a sitting member of the Ukrainian, Ukrainian parliament uh, actually got his hands on that. A, 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 a government anti-corruption bureau uh, uh, was uh, instrumental in sort of spreading that uh, this, these documents that showed that Manafort was taking payment from this Ukrainian party that was kind of linked to the Russian government. You know, so all the you know Ukrainian politicians and Ukrainian government agencies were involved in spreading a a dossier uh, on um, Paul Manafort that discredited him and, and discredited the Trump campaign. So, like, no one's talking about that. And and Trump has been trying, wanting to use that somehow against the Democratic Party. And so you could see him kind of moving towards that from a mile away. It's really not that surprising. And, of course, he did it in the most crude way, dumb way possible, you know, on an open phone call. Right, <laughs> With yeah. a bunch of these people who are essentially, you know, against them in his administration, listening in. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he's, you know, but but... So um, I guess, I don't know, it's not surprising. It's not surprising that he totally botched it as well. Right. Because he's, he's kind of a just, you know, incompetent in that way. He doesn't really care. Right. Um, and we're actually going to be joined now on the phone with Aaron Mate, by Aaron Mate. Aaron, you there? Thank you so much for joining me and Yasha Levine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, we are talking about what's not being talked about with the impeachment. Um, and who better to talk about that with than with you? If you could just give us an update about what we learned today or didn't learn. And then we can talk more about the uh, arming Ukraine issue. Well, I think what we learned is just more evidence, in my view, that the Democrats are among the most craven and incompetent opposition parties in history. Also, no cursing. Could, I'm sure you know that, but just in case it could come it. up in this. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't curse. I, I, I know. I it's very emotional. Yeah. I know. Uh, I'm just predicting topic, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, fair enough. No. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, you know, uh, the fact that they're making this the sub this, this issue the subject of impeachment it just underscores to me uh how awful they are at opposing trump and actually how much contempt they have for working people instead of being a party where they're centering the concerns of working people and building a political program that could help to win the next election uh they are trying to impeach trump for i think on the on the thinnest grounds uh, for an alleged plot that came nowhere near to be uh, nowhere near um, 
actualized. And the evidence for it, actually, if you, you know, put aside like all the maximalist interpretations the Democrats have drawn from it, isn't actually there. And what it's actually about is in the same way that Russiagate resulted from some people in the national security state being hostile to Trump, not because they care about his misogyny or his racism or his assaults on working people at home and abroad, but because they they didn't like him because they didn't see him as a suitable steward of the U.S. empire, and they didn't like his occasional deviations from bipartisan orthodoxy, in, in the case of, of Russia especially, when he talked about getting along with Russia. And here, he briefly pauses some military aid. Uh, they come up with this interpretation that he was trying to bully Ukraine into investigating Joe Biden. They might be right, but the evidence that they've produced so far is pretty thin. And that's why, you know, one of their Congress members even said that the evidence suggests that uh, Trump leveraged military aid to compel investigations. Uh, but they didn't say the evidence shows because it doesn't. All they have is basically hearsay from uh, the uh, bureaucrats who testified before the House impeachment. I'm sure Yasha has already mentioned this because he tweeted about this, but I think it's worth underscoring. One of the witnesses for the Democrats, Pamela Carlin, she said that this is not just about our national interest to protect elections or make sure Ukraine stays strong and fights the Russians so we don't have to fight them here, but it's in our national interest to promote democracy worldwide, unquote. I mean, this is one of the Democrats' witnesses today. And this shows what all this is about, this paranoid worldview that Russia is our enemy and we must be fighting them. And accordingly, when Trump briefly interrupts uh, military funding that is used to fight Russia, then that is worthy of a national scandal. And it's this fantasy that we're fighting Russia in Ukraine so we don't have to fight them here. That's, again, I'm quoting the uh, one of the witnesses, they have the Democrats. It shows just how unhinged and uh, hawkish Democrats have become, how far they've moved to the right under Trump, is illustrated by, by the fact that the very military assistance that Trump briefly paused is the same military assistance, funding, whatever you want to call it, that Obama refused to send when he was in office. Right. And now some, of, some of the witnesses of De- who Democrats are calling, like their first one, Bill Taylor, back then he was campaigning against Obama, urging him to send weapons to Ukraine. Obama didn't want to do it because... And Fiona Hill actually, sorry to interrupt, Fiona Hill actually also was against it. Um, there was another star witness in the in the impeachment hearings. Um, she was against, um, she wrote a report, I think it was for Brookings, uh, mm-hmm. uh, during the Obama administration, arguing against arming uh, Ukraine uh, because it would only prolong the fight, it would make it worse. So, and of course she did a you know total U-turn uh, and, you know, talks about now and talked about now how it was important to arm Ukraine and how Ukraine is this yeah it's the front lines of America's right. fight against the Russians and I if you don't if happen. you don't kill the Russians in Ukraine they're going to be at your doorstep basically stealing your Amazon packages you know uh, for Christmas right that always I hate when that happens I mean, it's, there's it's, a little it, borscht there's a little trail of borscht <laughs> that's how I know yeah, they've been there yeah you know and, and pickles yeah Pickles, yeah. and I slip on the pickles and the boards. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Can I just yeah. say something, Aaron? Uh, I, I just as a, as a, as a, as an admirer, you know, I, I don't know how you do it, man. I mean, I keep, I think I t- say this every time uh, we talk. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I don't know what what kind of drugs you take or what kind of what do you, what kind of meditation you're into or what. Or, the Four Agreements. We know he reads that book. Or what? Yeah. What What it is you do to your mind to be able to stand this stuff? But I, I mean, it is. 
I I don't know if you might have to be treated for PTSD after this. <laughs> I mean, I, I I actually don't know because I can't I can't I can't do it. I don't have the strength. I don't have the strength. I don't, I I realize now that I'm probably not cut out for combat. You know, uh, but you really do a great job staying on top of this in, in a way that I think uh, is is extremely difficult. I think people don't understand how hard it is to stay on top, how disgusting it is, and how just mind you know mind bogglingly boring on the one hand and kind of evil. Uh, it is, and having to process that is actually very, very difficult for a journalist. I mean, I, I, I say this because I can't do it uh, on a level that you do. So, hats off to you. Well, thanks. Yes, I appreciate that. You know, I, I see it. I mean, from two angles: there's a journalism angle, and there's a political angle. You know, journalistically, it's a unfortunately Russia Gate now Ukraine Gate are the predominant stories, and so if you want to, it's important just to be on top of the facts, and they're really. You know, there are elements of these stories that are really important, you know, that I think are are worth covering accurately, especially when so much of our media, including our progressive media and adversarial media, that would normally be skeptical of intelligence claims and skeptical not just of Trump, but of other people in power, too, are not doing their job. So it's just important to get the facts right. And politically, you know, which I care about just as much, I think it's important as a progressive who wants to defeat Donald Trump, I think it's important that we not cede our opposition to Trump to the same people who lost to Trump in 2016, Democratic leadership and all the, their cable uh, news media allies, who basically enough voters in 2016 rebelled against, thinking that Trump was the anti-establishment candidate, because that's what he marketed himself as. Uh, and after they lost, they had an incentive to do everything they could to uh, change their policies and to do, and to do honest self-reflection. And <laughs> right. Russia Gate, and, now, and, yeah. Russia Gate and, and now Ukraine Gate is 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 the is the uh, baby of all that. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah, totally. I also want people to know that uh, speaking of Russia Gate and its usefulness, um, I guess apparently, let's see, today's the fourth, right? So yeah, so today Hillary Clinton. Um, went on Howard Stern, I don't know if you saw this, and said um, the Russians were working to elect Bernie in 2016. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a Michael Tracy tweet who was uh, retweeted by Matt Taibbi. So here's what, <laughs> here's what um, uh, Hillary said. He hurt me, there's no doubt. Uh, speaking about Bernie, I hope he doesn't do it again to whoever gets the nomination. Once is enough. So that was Hillary complaining about Bernie Sanders not endorsing her quickly enough. The victim. And wow. yeah, and that's how, um, yeah, that's how he hurt her. Um, and, and as Matt Taibbi tweets, uh, that was Hillary Clinton to Howard Stern about the person who gave 39 speeches in 13 states on her behalf in 2016. I want to give a shout out to Hillary Clinton because as a feminist, I really appreciate that mm -hmm. she shows that women can be just as dishonest um as men and entitled like i mean really i like that seeing that entitlement mm. um uh i like that it's not just straight white men who have that kind of entitlement i really think it's an important thing for us to aspire towards yeah it's incredible so she and she explicitly said that bernie was held by the russians so the rush it's it was the russians right. were running him or what, what did she say um that they i don't know let's see in this one you mean yeah well just the but she made that connection between Bernie Sanders and, and, the, and the Russians. Yeah. Quote unquote. Right, right, right. Um, that's so incredible. The Russians were working to elect Bernie. That's so he hurt me. So, there's, yeah. that's, that's, there's no doubt about it. Um, so, the, so I don't have the quote. Like, this is my, I'm going to read Michael Tracy's tweet. 
Hillary on Howard Stern today said the Russians were working to elect Bernie in 2016, wow. period. Here's the quote. He hurt me, there's no doubt about it, end quote. She said we Bernie because he didn't endorse her quickly enough. Quote, I hope she doesn't do it again to whoever gets the nomination. Once is enough, end quote. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, uh, Aaron, anything else well, that you... Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so this kind of cynicism and disingenuousness and entitlement and just straight up delusionment is a big reason why we got Donald Trump, because Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate, and enough people saw that and either didn't vote for her or voted for her opponent because they wanted to rebel against the uh, establishment that she represented and Trump conned people into believing, and, and Trump conned enough, peop enough people in the swing state into believing that he might actually drain the swamp. And it then explains why we then get you know, this refusal to accept minimal responsibility for your record and your bad campaign where Hillary Clinton didn't even visit Michigan or Wisconsin because her team felt as if the more she went there, the worse she would do because her economic legacy that she represented was so unpopular. So this refusal to accept responsibility for that then helps explain why we have Russia Gate and now Ukraine Gate and what is, uh, what is whatever. I mean, and that's, it'd be fine if that was just Hillary Clinton's problem. And it'd be fine if it was just Hillary Clinton's problem that she's, like, blaming the Russians for convincing blacks not to vote in Michigan. It's literally something that she said recently yeah. on that same on that same podcast where she attacked Tulsi Gabbard and called her a Russian asset. That'd be fine if it was just Hillary Clinton's problem, because that's just her problem to sure. deal with and, you know, whatever. But the problem is the Democratic establishment that Hillary Clinton represents, they've enrolled everybody, they've enrolled millions of liberals into believing that the way to resist Trump is to cater to Hillary Clinton and her allies this uh, delusionment, which means that you're going to blame everybody but yourself, Russians, Bernie, for your own failures. And it's amazing that you know, we're now, it's like 2016 was, uh, the, uh, the election was almost four years ago, and we're still trying to undo it and still trying to resist the fact that that it didn't go the way that Hillary Clinton and her allies wanted it. And, and that's what puts us in this position today. And that's why, for example, just today, the Trump administration finalized a rule that was going to cut food stamps for something like 700, 755,000 people. And that's been in the works for a long time. And, you know, some Democrats have stood up to it and done something, and there's been a couple of articles here and there. But it's an undeniable fact that Democrats as a whole have been working harder to protect, you know, $400 million to fund a proxy war in Ukraine and to benefit weapons manufacturers than they have to defend the food stamps of nearly 1 million people in this country. Yeah, so have you been watching the uh, impeachment uh, impeachment hearings today? Because I've, I've, how has it been going? <laughs> is it, or is it, is it, has it been the exact same, you know, because they roll out these witnesses that say the exact same thing, right? That the, you know, you need to use Ukraine as a, as sort of the fort, you know, fort America that, you know, uh, to, to protect America from, from Russia. And if you don't arm Ukraine and Ukraine is the most important strategic partner, you know, for America against the world of Russia, it was basically just more of that today that, because every, every other witness was basically saying that over and over and over again. Yes, coupled, you know, that plus coupled with, you know, you have a panel of four legal scholars, three of them called by the Democrats, and they're all arguing that, you know, what Trump did in, in uh, trying to pressure Ukraine and leveraging military aid is this massive affront 
the Constitution and to the Republic. And for the sake of the country, we need to impeach him over this. And one, uh, the other one, the Republican one is Jonathan Turley, who actually is a Democrat. He voted against Trump, saying that this is actually setting a terrible precedent where if you're basically where, where a the the crime of bribery here is is, uh, is the threshold for that is nowhere near met. And what you're essentially doing is you're trying to criminalize a policy difference where you don't like that Trump mm. held up some military assistance briefly to Ukraine. And he's saying that that's going to set up a terrible precedent for the country. And uh, I, I, you know, I tend to uh, to favor that point of view. I, I think, you know, what Democrats should have done, I think, is just basically censure Donald Trump, you know, which I think actually would have put some pressure on some, on some Republicans because, you know, he did bring up Joe Biden in that phone call with Zelensky. And he did ask Zelensky to look into these corruption allegations. And I, I think it's fair to say that a president shouldn't be doing that, shouldn't be asking a foreign leader to look into, uh, you know, allegations against someone who could be a president's political rival. You know, yeah. so I, I think I think they could have censured him and moved on. Instead, they're making this an impeachment, which few people care about. It's hard to follow. It's not the worst thing Trump has done. It's far from it. I'd say, I don't know, it, it ranks extremely low in his long catalog of offenses and crimes. And it's going to distract from a really important primary and suck up attention, just like Russiagate did. And we all know how Russiagate turned out. I mean, you know, Ukraine Gate is essentially an extension of Russiagate. I mean, right, because it is really still about Russia and, you know, Trump's, you know, uh, alleged connection to Russia, right? Because why else would he be uh, withholding this aid uh, if he's not working for Russian interest, right, uh, and trying to weaken Ukraine. I mean, that's it's a sort of a it's sort of the the, the sequel, uh, Russiagate 2.0 or Russiagate 2. You know the, uh, um, yeah, no so, doubt. I yeah. mean, no, like no doubt. I mean, that was made very clear by all the witnesses uh, in the first phase of this in the intelligence community hearings. All of them talked about the you know how upset they were that Trump was putting this military systems on hold. I mean, and as I said, literally, the Democrats' first witness, Bill Taylor, he is someone who called Obama's policy of not sending military assistance and uh, uh, and of, you know, being open to the possibility of a negotiated solution in the, Don- in the Donbass region where, you know, where the proxy war in Ukraine is being waged. Bill Taylor called that appeasement. So, mm-hmm. the, you know, it, now, that, now, Democrat, now yeah. Democrats are throwing him... Now, Democrats are throwing basically Obama's policy under the bus. By the way, I mean, not that Obama was great. I mean, it's Obama's administration. Is uh, Yasha has has talked about, and, and others uh, have written about extensively. Steve Cohen of the Nation. Uh, it was Obama's administration that started all this when they decided to basically launch a coup in Ukraine and overthrow the democratically elected government and launch this proxy war that has empowered far right neo Nazis helped, you know, uh, plunge Ukraine into, into even more misery and treat it sort of and treat it as basically a, um, a punching bag for U.S. neocons. And it's sort of like a it's a it, yeah. it's like a vessel state, a, a, a vessel state. Yeah. And I'd like to say that, you know, I mean, just listeners, because Ukraine is, is such a such an like a you know, it's such a small place. It's such a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a country that Americans don't really think about or don't, don't really care about in the, uh, you know, American elites certainly don't really care about only in, 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 in the way that it can be used to advanced sort of American geopolitical interests. And, um, but it's important to remember that the, uh, you know, Ukrainian voters 
um, just just earlier this year, uh, with a huge, with a historic margin of over 75%, uh, voted for this uh, new new president, uh, who is actually kind of like Trump himself, who is a he's a he's actually a comedian, a very popular comedian and entertainer. It was a, you know he has his first uh, you know, political position, and he ran on, on what essentially was a pro peace platform. Uh, uh, he ran on a platform where he promised to bring the war uh, in East Ukraine. Uh, the sort of uh, w- essentially what has become a civil war uh, with different uh, powers backing different sides. You know, America's uh, backing the kind of Western Ukrainian side of the war and the Russian government backing the Eastern Ukrainian side of the war to try to bring this war to an end. Uh, and um, and on the one hand, yes, he's asking for assistance and he's asking for military assistance from, from the United States. But uh, the Ukrainian people, I mean, no one really cares about what the Ukrainian people want here in, in, in America, but they want peace. They don't want to be used as cannon fodder uh, in America's fight against uh, Russia. Uh, overwhelming. I mean, if you think about it, 75% of the country voted for um, for a president. Um, and in a country that is, has actually kind of an anti problem with anti-Semitism, and he's Jewish. And so he's, uh, he's Ukraine's first Jewish president, uh, one with the largest margin in the history of Ukraine, and uh, who ran on a pro- peace platform. And so when you hear all these people, all these experts coming in front of the uh, impeachment hearings, talking about how we need to arm Ukraine, about how the war in you know, Ukraine is extremely important to American interests, we need to continue that war. We can't for, even for a second delay that war or uh, you know, slow it down by withholding aid. Actually, the aid was never really withheld, right? It was delivered timely on a timely schedule. It's just the authorization of that aid was withheld. Because you, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's you know there's like a year lag between when when this aid is authorized and actually when it's delivered. And um, so, you know, it's important to remember that Ukraine wants peace, uh, and but you but actually listening to these impeachment hearings, you wouldn't really get that sense, right? Uh, I mean, um, Aaron, you you I mean, you've been watching them much more than I have, but it's not it's not a, it's not the feeling that you get when you watch these things. Not at all. No, those those voices for peace are totally omitted. And instead, you even have praise coming from people like George Kent, one of the Democrats' witnesses, uh, basically comparing uh, the far-right Ukrainian forces, uh, which include neo-Nazis, to the Minutemen. You right. know, uh, oh, that's ridiculous. Which is, yeah. which is a which is a good analogy in some respects, in that in that the Minutemen massacred. Indigenous people, right? Killed indigenous uh, people, right? And also, the current Minutemen are are these pretty far right wackos, vigil- yeah. border Racist, vigilantes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, exactly. Yeah, perfect exactly. analogy. Yeah, yeah. Well, but that's who that's who Democrats want to arm. Yeah, and they are the Democratic Party. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, It's always great when uh, Democrats uh, replace the the Republicans as the more hawkish party. It's a really good move. Um, uh, Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Aaron Mate, you can follow him on Twitter at AJ Mate. Um, And Yasha, thank you so much for talking to us. And both of you will come back. We are so honored now to be joined by two really inspiring. and courageous guests, um, Ron Davis, who is the father of Jordan Davis. Ron Davis was born in Harlem, but resided in Queens, New York. He moved to Atlanta in 1990 and then to Jacksonville, Florida in 2002. His wife is Carolina Davis, Carolina Davis, and he has two sons, Ron Jr. and Jordan Davis. After Jordan Davis's untimely and tragic death, his father, Ron Davis, became a steadfast activist working to prevent the use of stand-your-ground laws to justify unprovoked killings. 
In 2013, he established the Jordan Davis Foundation, a nonprofit organization that aims to provide financial assistance for children to nurture their curiosity with exposure to cultural initiatives through travel and education. He is the CEO president of the Jordan Davis Foundation and on the planning committee of the U.S. Human Rights Network. We are also joined by CFIS Uncle Bobby Johnson, who is the uncle of Oscar Grant. Um, he is a social justice activist and at the forefront of ending police violence in America. After his nephew, Oscar Grant, was murdered by a BART police officer in 2009, Cephas has founded four grassroots social justice organizations, the Oscar Grant Foundation, Love Not Blood Campaign, California Families United for Justice, and a National Families United for Justice Network. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining us on WBI. And please tell us what you are um, working on for this weekend. Yes, this is Ron. And uh, yes, we uh, came up, uh, Jen Marlowe, who uh, wrote a book called I Am Troy Davis, about the execution of Troy Davis in 2011. And she contacted me and asked me if I could get together some other activists and some people that were impacted by executions. And the connection that I have for the execution was that I had the ability at the time that Jordan was killed by Michael Dunn, he was murdered by Michael Dunn, the district attorney asked me whether or not I wanted to go for the death penalty as we had first-degree murder. And uh, I decided, me and my family, uh, that we did not want the death penalty because we don't believe that it's in our nature as being able to be a supreme being to authorize the death of someone else, no matter how bad or whatever they did. I think that life imprisonment serves that purpose where he can think of Jordan every single day of his life and he knows that's why he's in prison without parole for the rest of his life. And I don't think that we have an obligation as people in this country all, all over the world to be able to say that we're God and that we're going to take someone else's life. Yeah, and of course um, your son was killed over um, his his quote-unquote crime was loud music. Loud music, exactly. And so that was really, and that's the, the backdrop of that, that. This man saw what George Zimmerman did in the Trayvon right. Martin case because he lived in Satellite Beach, Florida, which is not very far from Sanford. And he saw that George Zimmerman basically got away with murder. Right. And he was basically a copycat. So he went out with his gun in order to do harm to these individuals. And so these four young men were just trying to have a good time. And he decided to take the lives of all the men. He shot 10 bullets into a car full of kids. And he only hit my son, and I'm very fortunate that the other young men did not uh, receive any type of uh, wounds. But uh, he will pay for the rest of his life for the killing of my son because I feel the loss every single day right. of my life. Yeah, and you have much more. I mean, it's just stunning that you have compassion for a murderer, so much more compassion for a murderer than he did for a young exactly. man. Yes, absolutely. Um and um, you are, and you are here also. Yes, um, I, Uncle Bobby. I, yes, uh, um, I am Uncle Bobby X, the uncle of Oscar Grant. And for the listeners that hey, may not know who Oscar Grant is, on January first, two thousand nine, at the Fruitvale Bark Station in Oakland, California, my nephew Oscar Grant laying face down, hands behind his back. Uh, commuters on the train video record everything that's happening. Were able to witness a murder. Uh, or what we call an execution of Oscar at the time when he was murdered. Um, and for those that may not be aware, as a result of that murder, of course, the movie Fruitvale Station mm -hmm. uh, was brought into existence by Ryan Krugler, the same director who had done, as we know, Black Panther. 
Uh, but because of the community effort of embracing the family, standing with us, crying with us, going back and forth to court with us, praying for us, but most importantly, utilizing their, their First Amendment right to speak to the injustice of what they witnessed and the fact that these commuters uploaded to YouTube and various other social media aspects, platforms, for the world to see an execution in the way that we did, Oscar became the martyr of the 21st century movement that we see today, uh, as many of us know as Black Lives Matter movement and others. But more importantly, I think, is the fact that for the first time in California state history, the community were able uh, and supported the family to get the first officer in its history ever arrested, charged, convicted, and sent to jail. Uh, we don't count it as a victory, but we do count it as history because he only did 11 months. Uh, of course, the judge uh, put up a, a tremendous fight to keep him out of prison and did what he can to really just put him in men's county jail. So he did, of course, only 11 months and got out. Um, um, I'm here uh, because it's a, a, a reminiscing of an event that we did 10 years ago, almost to the exact same date, where Troy Davis' sister, Martina, came to Oakland uh, in regards to uh, this uh, attempt to stop the execution of his, her brother, Troy, at that time. But on that venue, we had also Kevin Cooper, who, as you know, is um, sitting on death row, Momia, as well as uh, Kevin Cooper. And it was all in regards to what happened to Tookie Williams four years before. Uh, some of the speakers at that event was, of course, Angela Davis, Barbara Becknell, who the book was written and the movie was produced behind, uh, of course, myself, my sister, uh, Martina, and others. Uh, you know, and here we are today in um, New York, Brooklyn, New York, to be exact, um, getting ready to do a reading in regards to the Trump administration considering, not considering, but uh, bringing back this um, execution process that we know is racist and heinous in its own uh, elements when it comes to those that are being executed, as we know. And, and, and sadly, uh, we know that many that are sitting on death row are innocent, like Troy was. Yeah, And right. yet their lives are taken. And what we don't realize is that death is final. Once a person is gone, they are gone. Right. And and you are put. You are part of this um, performance, right, which will be um, held uh, Sunday, December 8th at the Rattlestick Theater in New York City. Um at 3 p.m., and it is performed by people who have been directly impacted by the death penalty, mass incarceration, state, and racial violence. Um, and it is I Am Troy Davis, based on the book by Jem Marlowe and Martina Davis Correa with Troy Davis. And it tells the story of Troy Davis, an innocent man executed in Georgia in 2011. Now, this show is basically um, sold. It's almost sold out. But right. you can watch the live stream at donkeysaddle.org. Again, that's donkey, D-O-N-K-E-Y-S-A-D-D-L-A.org. Um, and it's also being produced with um, in cooperation with Amnesty International, Blackbird, Death Penalty Action, the Jordan Davis Foundation, Legal Defense Fund, the Mamie Till Mobley Memorial Foundation, the People's Forum, Rattlesuck Playwrights Theater, and Witness to Innocence. Um, and Love Not Blood campaign. And Love or, Not Blood campaign. Right. Um, and it also features the artwork of Billy Allen, who is currently on federal death row with an innocence case. Um, and 
uh, the performers include people who have been exonerated uh, from death row, like Sabrina Butler, Shuja Graham, who was exonerated from California death row, Lawrence Hayes, survivor of New York death row, Aisha Salam, sister of Yusuf Salam, wrongfully convicted in the Central Park Five case, Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, um, who was killed by Pantaleo, and she's been on the show, um, Akeem Browder, who's the brother of Khalif Browder, um and uh it's just uh don't forget i'm sorry sorry sure. uh, er- erica gordon who is the cousin of emmett till yeah is yeah. yes where's is that uh which is i mean it's yeah. amazing yes erica gordon taylor cousin mm-hmm. of emmett till right. um yvette allen sister of billy allen um ron davis of course um yeah and and delia perez mayer sister of luis castro perez um who is currently on death row. And something that people don't think about is that, you know, every time there's an exoneration, people will think that, oh, look, the system works because someone was exonerated. But what they don't realize is that there have been so many people who have already been killed who were right. innocent. That's right. So there are a couple layers, right? Like we know it is a racist, classist, unfair, okay. anti-constitutional because it's cruel, unusual uh, punishment. And then on top of that, it is just... A punishment that kills innocent people. And if you're a death row lawyer, you don't have the resources to go prove that someone who was killed was innocent because you have another client who's going to be killed. So you right. don't have the time and the money put into it. So it's not a self-regulating system. I mean, I think we're all in this room opposed to it in principle anyway, but I just think it's an important point to make to people who aren't there yet maybe that it is something that kills innocent people. And it's up to 4% now of... Uh they found that these people are innocent that they've executed. It's up to 4% of the people. Who have already been. Already right. Been so mu- it's so. obviously much higher than yes. that, right? Right. Exactly. Because of that's what we've found, found out. Found out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the- yeah. <laughs> and, and you guys are really working at this intersection. It's like the flip side. It's the execution of by the state. Yes. So it's murder of poor and and the biggest thing that determines whether you're executed is the race of the perpetrator and the race of the victim, right? Yes, because it's right. it's a white victim and a black. And it's a um, higher rate. Higher rate. Yeah. Um. So that's on the one side. You have this um legal ex- execution, um, and then you have extrajudicial executions right. that yes. are that are you know Im- done by the police. That's correct. And they go hand in hand, right? One is like the officially you're right. able to do this. The other thing, you're not officially able to do it, but you are. Right. right. Ha- so where do you guys get the kind of strength to keep fighting and to not say, yeah, let's kill this person um, or just give up your hands and, and, and watch, you know. Well, I work, you know, TV. also with the U.S. Human Rights Network. And so I've been abroad and been to about 30 countries. And, you know, when you go to other countries and you don't see this in other countries, you know, we're supposed to be what we're supposed to be, number one in the world, as people would like to say. But you have countries that don't have gun law, that have right. gun laws that right. says we don't have a gun in our country. You can't have a gun in uh, Japan. Mm. You know, there's many places that you can't have a gun, period. And, you know, so we continue to kill people with guns. Then we continue to kill people through the prison industrial complex. Right. And, you know, when you look at uh, black people in this country, it's from 12 to 13 percent of the population, but 42, 43 percent of the people on death row are black people. 
Something's wrong with that figure. Yeah. There's absolutely something wrong with that figure. So uh, we need all the help that we can get from Washington. I know uh, my ex-wife Jordan's mother, she's now a congresswoman, yeah, Congresswoman McBath, yeah. yeah. And she's writing gun laws. But I also would ask some of her colleagues to write laws to get rid of this execution right. that cycle that we're in. You know, federal execution does not have to come back. We have that on a state level all the time. Right. People on the state level have been executed in 2019 already. So we don't need to do it on the federal level. So, you know, uh, I think it's very important and not only important for black people, but important for the the conscience of America that we stop this. Also mentally ill people, uh, poor people of all, you know, that's the if you are a white person with a with a mental illness, you're basically treated like a black person without a mental illness. It's equally disposable to the law yeah. and order. In it's the value that they put yeah. on your life. Yeah. I that's, mean, that's what it's about. Um, yeah, I was going to add, yeah. too, if uh, uh, the question was, um, how do we keep going? I mean, I look at my grandbabies, and I know that if they are to have real freedom, justice, and equality in this world, that I must stand up. And I say to the world that if we fail to stand now, it would be their demise tomorrow. So we have an obligation to make this this world right uh, those of us that are walking with the more conscious those of us that has been impacted by this violence this state violence extrajudicial killing those of us that have family members that are sitting on death row or those of us that have been impacted by this racist criminal justice system has a commitment to become part of this united stand to first um, stop the executions of our innocent brothers and sisters that are locked up but even more importantly, to dismantle this racist criminal justice system. It is by design doing exactly how it was built. And if we fail to recognize how important it is for us to dismantle and then rebuild to the right state, we all will be in trouble. Yeah, like Michelle Alexander, right, talks about how, the author of The New Jim Crow talks about how it's not an accident. This isn't just a tragic thing, a mistake. It's like this is how it was designed to function. And it's working the way they want it to work. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've also had um, Alec Vitale on who says the same thing. It's not that police brutality isn't, it's not a bug. It's, um, Mm -hmm. what's the expression? It's not a bug. It's the, basically, yes, it's by design. It's not an, it's not an unfortunate, um, thing and you know police the since it's been designed as it's been designed to function this way to control populations to you know uh, put you know suppress uh rebellion um right. return slaves to right. their quote unquote right. owners right. um and so and is this something you do do you feel like you honor the memories of your nephew and your son when you're engaged okay. in this work definitely you know jordan would never want that you know we would never want someone to be killed in his name right you know, even though he was killed. Right. You know, right. and so when you you think of the victim's rights as far as the family's rights, I think the family yes. plays an important part. When the district attorney is out there uh, deciding whether someone should live or die, I think the family should get involved and really get. Uh, many of the times, the families don't uh, right. have a say so. Yeah, and know? they don't want that. Rennie yeah. Cushing, I don't know if you know him, he started family members of, uh, against murder um, for that. Anyway, he's someone who started this. He, he lost a brother mm-hmm. and his and his father. They were both killed, and he opposes the death penalty. There you and if, go. if you have people like your such as yourselves who lost family to to this violence and oppose the death penalty, it's kind of the least we can ask, I think, for people who don't have people who've been killed 
they right. should listen to you. Yeah, you know? respect that. Right, yeah. because people right. will often say, what if it was your mother? If your, well, look at this. You guys had that, and you're not for it. But thank you guys so much for joining us. And really, I hope that people go to donkeysaddle.org to watch the, the performance. Yes. And also, just quickly say... You can go to my page. Um, our website is walkwithjordan.org. Yes, and you can go to the Love Not Blood campaign, which is www.lovenotbloodcampaign.org. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. And thank you both thank so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, you for, for having us. Okay, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, become Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. I'm bringing you two new Patreons this week, um, Patreon-only episodes. One is an extended interview with Yasha Levine about Ukrainian fascists who uh, we are currently arming in the United States. And uh, also an interview with um, Bronco Marchetich about the media bias against Bernie. 